Chapter 26 The Life and Adventures of James P. Beckworth Mountaineer, Scout, and Pioneer and Chief of the Crow Nation of Indians Written from his own dictation by T.D. Bonner This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. We received another deputation from the Asni Bone to sue for a renewal of peace. We had lost a warrior and two women who had been massacred when away from the village, and on discovery of the bodies, we followed the trail of the perpetrators in the direction of the Blackfoot country. We eventually discovered that many petty outrages which we had charged upon the Blackfeet were in reality committed by the treacherous Asni Bone. On their return from their thievish inroads, they were in the habit of proceeding very near to a Blackfoot village, with which they were at peace, and then, turning obliquely, would cross the Missouri into their own country. Becoming acquainted with this oft-repeated ruse, we determined to chastise them. I accordingly crossed the Missouri with a force of 850 men and invaded their territory with the determination to afflict upon them such a chastisement as should recall them to a sense of decency. We encountered a small village, only numbering 40 lodges, on their way to Fort Union and within a few hundred yards of the fort. Seeing our approach, they entrenched themselves in a hollow, rendering our assault a work of danger. But we stormed their position and killed twenty-six warriors, all of whom we scalped. The remainder we could not get at, as we found their position impregnable. Admonished by this chastisement, they sent another deputation to us to treat for the re-establishment of peace. But their propositions were unfavorably received, and Yellowbelly favored them with his sentiments in the following rather unpalatable and characteristic strain. No, said he, in answer to their representations. We make peace with you no more. You are dogs. You are women slayers. You are unworthy of the confidence or notice of our people. You lie when you come and say that you want peace. You have crooked and forked tongues. They are subtle like the tongue of the serpent. Your hearts are corrupt. They are offensive in our nostrils. We made peace with you before because we pitied you. We looked upon you with contempt as not even worthy to be killed by the sparrow hawks. We did not wish for your scalps. They disgrace our others. We never mixed them even with those of the Blackfeet. When we are compelled to take them from you on account of your treachery, we give them to our pack dogs, and even they howl at them. 
before we gave you horses to carry you home and guns to kill your buffalo. We gave you meat and drink. You ate and drank and smoked with us. After all this, you considered yourselves great braves in scalping two of our women. Our women would rub out your nation and put out all your fires if we should let them loose at you. Come and steal our horses when you think best, and get caught at it if you want to feel the weight of our tomahawks. Go! We will not make peace with you. Go! After this very cordial reception, we had no more intercourse with the Asni Bone for some time. Shortly after the departure of this delegation, we set out for the fort to trade away our peltry, which amounted to a considerable number of packs. On arriving there, I found a letter from a Mr. Halsey, who then had charge of Fort Union, the headquarters of the American Fur Company. The letter was couched in rather strong terms, and was evidently written when he was under the influence of temper. The company had their trading posts among every tribe with which the crows were at war, and for many months past there had been a great falling off in trade. The Indians had brought in but little peltry, and the universal complaint among all was that it took all their time to defend themselves against the crows. The crows had killed scores of their warriors. The crows had stolen all their horses. The crows had captured their women and children. The crows had kept them mourning and crying. Their trappers dare not go out to trap for fear of the crows. Their hunters dare not and could not kill buffalo for fear of the crows. In short, by this letter it appeared that the poor crows were the constant terror of all the surrounding tribes. He concluded his epistle, For sake, do keep your damned Indians at home, so that the other tribes may have a chance to work a little, and the company may drive a more profitable business. I knew perfectly well that these incessant wars were very prejudicial to the company's interest, but it was impossible for me to remedy the evil. Other tribes were continually attacking the crows, killing their braves and stealing their horses, and of course, they were bound to make reprisals. In justice to the crows, I must say, that other tribes were generally the aggressors, until the policy was forced upon me of endeavoring to conquer at peace. I thought, if I could make the Crow Nation a terror to all their neighbors, that their antagonists would be reduced to petition for peace, and then turn their battle axes into beaver traps, and their lances into hunting knives. Our villages, having made their purchases, left the fort, but stayed in the vicinity, engaged in trapping and making robes. The letter I had just received from Halsey 
requested my attendance on him that spring. I left my people and went down the river to Fort Union. On arriving, I found a large body of the Asney Bone encamped near the fort. Their chiefs immediately came to me, wishing me to conclude peace with them as representative of the Crow Nation. They attempted to palliate their late misdeeds by throwing the blame on a few Asney Bone desperadoes, who had acted without the authority or the cognizance of the National Council, and that they had been severely punished by the tribe for their excesses. In answer, I told them that I had no authority to conclude peace, that even if I had, they would not observe a peace longer than one moon that I thought the crows would throw difficulties in the way of entertaining their propositions, but that they could apply to the council again and learn how they were inclined. Mr. Halsey and all the sub-traders present interceded with me to exert myself in establishing a peace between the two nations, which request I promised to comply with. The chiefs inquired, whether we would take their lives in the event of their visiting us on such a mission. I assured them that the crows would hold their lives sacred, that they were not dogs, as many nations were, but that they were a great and magnanimous nation, whose power was predominant, and who killed no enemies but in battle. I remained at the fort about three weeks, and as most of the sub-traders, clerks, and interpreters were in, we had a glorious time. It was at least three or four years since I had last visited there, for though I fought a battle outside its walls lately, I did not see fit at that time to make them a call. The boats being ready to return, I started with them, but their progress was so slow and wearisome on their way up to the Yellowstone that I leaped ashore, intending to make my way over dry land. I have always rejoiced that I was prompted to take that step, for I became instrumental thereby in performing a merciful deed among so many that might be termed unmerciful. I had not traveled more than three miles when I came across a white man named Fuller in a famishing condition. I had a companion with me, whom I started off to the boats to bid them prepare something suitable to recover the poor fellow, and to order them to touch on shore when they came to where he lay. Fuller was quite delirious. I had discovered him just in the nick of time, as he could not have survived many hours longer. My companion was not long in performing his errand and when the boat touched for him, we carried him on board and gave him tea and warm restoratives. He shortly revived and then gave me to understand, in a very incoherent manner, that he had four companions in a similar condition near to where I had found him. At this intelligence, we went on shore again to succor them also. We had a long hunt before we succeeded in finding them, 
and when we at last discovered them, we found them picking and eating rosebuds, or, rather, the pods containing seed of last year's growth. When they saw us approaching, they attempted to run, supposing us to be Indians. But their strength failing them, they sought to conceal themselves in the bushes. We made known our errand to them, and invited them on board the boat. Our opportune offer of service seemed so providential that the fortitude of the poor famishing fellows could not sustain them, and they all gave way to a plentiful flood of tears. We conveyed them on board the boat and furnished them with food adapted to their emaciated condition. When in some measure restored, they informed us that they had been trapping in the mountains, their party originally consisting of eleven men, that they were on their road to Fort Cass with their pack horses and four packs of beaver, when they were set upon by the Blackfeet, who killed six of their party and despoiled them of every article they had, and it was by a miracle that they escaped from their hands. When they had supposed themselves near the fort, they saw a great number of Indians, whom they took for Blackfeet. To avoid them, they took a wide circuit through the prairie. The Indians whom they mistook for Blackfeet were a party of crows, and if they had gone up to them and made their case known, the crows would have escorted them to the fort, and probably have pursued the Blackfeet, and have retaken their property. On returning from their circuit, they struck the river a great distance below the fort, and were still traveling down the river in search of it. They had nothing to eat, and nothing to kill game with to relieve their wants. They went on with the boats, while I and my companion resumed our overland route. We reached the fort several days in advance of the boats. I only rested one night there, and then proceeded directly on to my Indian home. Shortly after my arrival there, the villages moved on up the river, proceeding leisurely, and killing buffalo in dressing robes on the way. We finally reached the mountain streams, and as it was now near September, the beaver were getting to be in fine condition for trapping. We had at this time a visit from 800 lodges of the snakes, who came for the purpose of trading, as they had no trading post of their own. They remained with us several weeks, and we had a very agreeable time together. This furnished me with an opportunity of enlarging to the crows upon the superior delights of peace. We could visit the lodges of our snake friends, and they could visit ours without cutting each other's throats. Our women could chatter together, our children gamble and have their sham battles together, while the old veterans could talk over their achievements and smile at the mimic war hoops of their children. They could also trade together and derive mutual benefit from the fair exchange of commodities. I contrasted this with the incessant butcheries that distinguished their intercourse with some tribes, 
and asked them which relation was the more desirable. The crows had many things to trade away which they had no need for, or, if they had needed them, they could replace them with a fresh supply from the fort. The nation was desirous that their guests should see the trading post, where all their goods were stored beyond the reach of their enemies, and whence they drew their supplies as often as they had need of them. For the simple crows supposed that the post with their contents were the property of the nation, and that the whites who were in charge there were their own agents. To gratify their natural pride, I led a party to the fort, among whom were two hundred of our snake visitors. On entering the fort and looking over the storehouse, they were struck dumb with astonishment. They could not comprehend the vastness of the wealth that was displayed before them. They had never before seen a depot of goods, and this exceeded all they had any previous experience of. The rows of guns highly polished, the battle axes, lance blades, scarlet cloth, beads, and many curiosities they had never seen before, filled them with admiration. They could not gaze sufficiently at these indications of our wealth. They inquired of the crows whether our nation made all those articles there. They told them that they did not, that they were made in our great fort below, in comparison with which this was but a small lodge that all our supplies were manufactured there and brought up the river in great boats by our white friends. They then inquired by what means they had gained the alliance of the whites, that instead of killing them and banishing them from their hunting ground, as they did to many nations, they should give themselves the great trouble to serve them with their boats and bring them such immense supplies. The crows informed them that their great chief, the medicine calf, had been instrumental in accomplishing all this. By his long residence with the whites, after his sale to them by the Cheyennes when he had become a great brave, he had gained surprising influence with the great white chief, who loved the medicine calf and had taught him to make forts and had suffered him to come back to his people in order to teach them to become great and overcome all their enemies. The snakes were wonder-stricken at such marvels. The unassailable fort, which a single bombshell would have blown to atoms, filled with an inexhaustible store of rich goods. Our great fort down the river, in comparison with which this was but a small lodge, and where all these marvelous products of our ingenuity were manufactured. Our mysterious connection with the whites, which procured us the advantage of their unremunerated services, and shielded us with the irresistible succor of the great white chief. All this overpowered their imagination. The wealth and power of the Crow Nation exceeded all conception 
and to oppose them in war was to incur unavoidable destruction. After the snakes had traded off their stock of peltry, obtaining large supplies in exchange, we returned to the village. They had wonderful narratives of the big fort and wealth of the Crow Nation to spend to their fellow villagers. In fact, they were so impressed with the idea of our superiority that two hundred lodges of the snakes joined our nation and never separated from them. They had a chief of their own, but conformed to our laws and regulations, proving themselves faithful fellow citizens and emulating our best warriors in battle. This coalition increased our force to the number of 500 warriors, more than we had lost in battle for four years preceding. They intermarried with our women, and in a few years were so completely transformed that they had quite forgotten their snake origin. On our return, the remainder of our friends left us. During our absence, the Blackfeet had invaded our dominion and made off with upward of 3,000 of our horses, very greatly to our detriment. The snakes were anxious to pursue them, or at least to assist their host in recapturing their stolen property. But Longhair declined their proffered service. He said, No, I am too old to run after them, and the warriors must have someone to direct them. Should any accident befall my people, the medicine chief would be grieved. We must wait his return from the fort. If he then deems it proper to punish them, he will not be long without the means. Our villages still remained together, and we moved on to the headwaters of the Yellowstone. We had several war parties out, and some endeavoring to retrieve our equine losses, while those who remained in the village applied themselves to trapping and hunting. The snake women were very skillful in dressing robes, far superior to our own, as they had been more engaged in it. My warriors were again burning with the desire for war and horse raids. Although our prairies were alive with animals, inaction seemed to consume them. In spite of my prohibition, they would steal away in parties during the night. When convicted, I would inflict severe floggings upon them by my dog soldiers, who did not spare the lash. But it was to little purpose. In fact, they took it as honorable distinction to receive a lashing, inasmuch as it indicated their overruling a door for war. And the culprit who received a flogging this morning for disobedience of orders was sure to be off at night again. An old warrior despises the sight of a trap. Hunting buffalo even does not afford him excitement enough. Nothing but war or a horse raid is a business worth their attending to. And the chief 
who seeks to control this predilection too far loses popularity. Accordingly, I gave way to the general desire of my warriors. I selected 160 trusty braves, intending to lay alongside my old friends the Blackfeet and wipe out one or two old scores I had marked against them. I invaded their territory with my little force and marched on, admonishing my spies to extreme vigilance. We came in sight of a village and secreted ourselves till a proper hour of night. On our march, we discovered a single Indian. Some of the party called him to them and clubbed him down and scalped him. He had mistaken us for his own people. At midnight, we visited their herd and drove out 640 head. A number of their best cattle were tied at the doors of their lodges and in their corrals. I arrived home safe with my booty, and as I had taken one scalp, we had a great dance. All our other parties were very successful, excepting one. That was one that had gone on an expedition against the Arapahoes. Pine Leaf was in the number. They had taken about a thousand horses, and having reached a distance that they supposed safe, they slackened their pace and were proceeding carelessly along. Suddenly, their pursuers came in sight. A strong pose comitatus, and retook all their animals except those that bore the fugitives and killed three of their comrades. The heroine came back in mourning, looking like the last of her race. One of our victorious parties brought back fifty boys and girls whom they had captured while gathering fruit. Since the loss of our three thousand horses to the Blackfeet, we had captured six thousand, two thousand five hundred of which had been recovered from the Blackfeet. We now moved on to the Yellowstone and crossed it, the villages still keeping together. We then journeyed on slowly in the direction of the fort, trapping and hunting all the way. We kept a vigilant eye upon our prisoners, for fear they might attempt an escape to their own tribes, and thus bring upon us a foe when we had no time to attend to him. This was a very productive fall for Peltry and we sent in great quantities to the fort in advance of our arrival. I remained at the trading post nearly the whole of the winter. In the early spring, the crows sent for me to rejoin them. I went accordingly, and found that their long-continued good fortune had suffered a reverse. They had grown careless in their expeditions, and had lost some of their warriors. They wished my aid to revenge their deaths and wash their faces. I required them to defer their retaliation until their robes were dressed and sent to the fort. They took hold of the business in good earnest, and every robe was soon ready for market. It was now time to plant our tobacco, and we all moved in the direction of our planting ground. The seed was put in, and the attending ceremonial gone through with. 
our pacific business thus completed, the warriors began to prepare for war. Our horses had been but little used during the winter, and they were all fat and in high condition. I took 360 warriors and went against the Cheyennes. We discovered a moving village of 60 lodges, charged on it, and bore away nine scalps with considerable booty without losing one drop of blood. Pine Leaf was in my party, and being so unfortunate as not to count one coup, she was greatly out of humor and blamed me for depriving her of the opportunity of killing an enemy. The truth is, we had no time to favor her, as I was desirous to secure our booty and get off without endangering the loss of a man. Her young Blackfoot prisoner had become quite a warrior. He went to war constantly and bid fair to equal his captor in valor. He was already a match for an ordinary Sioux warrior and took great pride in his sister Pine Leaf. All our war parties returned without loss, and the nation resumed its customary good spirits. I then returned to the fort, where I rested all the summer. My thoughts had for a long time past reverted to home. Year after year had rolled away, and now that I had attained middle life, they seemed to pass me with accelerated pace and the question would intrude upon my mind. What had I done? When I abandoned myself seriously to reflection, it seemed as if I had slumbered away the last twelve years. Others had accomplished the same toils as myself, and were now enjoying the fruits of their labor, and living in luxury and ease. But what had been my career? And what advance had I made toward this desirable consummation? I had just visited the Indian Territory to gratify a youthful thirst for adventure. I had narrowly escaped starvation in a service in which I had no interest. I had traversed the fastness of the far Rocky Mountains in summer heats and winter frosts. I had encountered savage beasts and wild men until my deliverance was a prevailing miracle. By the mere badinage of a fellow trapper, I had been adopted among the savages and had conformed my superior habits to their ruthless and untutored ways. I had accompanied them in their mutual slaughters and dyed my hand crimson with the blood of victims who had never injured me. I had distinguished myself in my barbarian seclusion and had risen to supreme command in the nation I had devoted myself to. And what had I to show for so much wasted energy and such a catalogue of ruthless deeds? I had been the means of saving many a fellow creature's life. Did they still owe me gratitude? Possibly some few did, while others had forgotten my name, 
In good truth, when I sought the results of my prolonged labors, I found I had simply wasted my time. I had bestowed years upon others, and only moments upon myself. However, I still lived, and there was yet time to take more heed unto my ways. I resolved to go home and see my friends, and deliver myself from this present vagabond life. The attachments I had formed during my savage chieftainship still retained some hold upon my affections, and it was barely possible I might return to them and end my days among my trusty braves. There at least was fidelity, and, when my soul should depart for the spirit land, their rude faith would prompt them to paint my bones and treasure them until I should visit them from my ever-flowing hunting ground and demand them at their hands. Such sober thoughts as these occupied my mind during my summer residence at the fort. I had brought with me all the peltry we had accumulated in order to be in season for the boats, which were soon to start for the lower fort. I had directed the village to follow along with whatever peltry they might collect before the departure of the boats. In obedience to this instruction, about 250 warriors came down, bringing their commodities with them, but the boats had gone, and I still was waiting at the fort. One day, a party of my men were out to hunt buffalo for our own use, when they accidentally scared up eleven Blackfeet, who were lurking about on the lookout for horses. They chased them into our old camping ground, and the fugitives had taken refuge in our old temporary fort. I was sitting at the fort the while, busily conversing with persons present. I heard the report of their guns, and supposed, if the affair proved serious, I should be promptly sent for. Bad Hand, one of my leaders, finally said, They are fighting out yonder, and I don't suppose they can do anything without we are with them. Let us go. We each threw on a chief's coat and went down to see how matters stood. I found the Blackfeet fortified in their position and our men ineffectually firing upon them. I ordered an immediate assault, placing myself at their head. We advanced a few paces at a rapid rate, when I fell senseless with the blood gushing from my mouth in a stream. All supposed me mortally wounded, and I was carried into the fort to breathe my last. The boats had left and Tulik happened to be starting after them just as I was carried in. Seeing my wounded condition, and everyone pronouncing me in a dying state, he reported me as being dead at the lower fort. Whence the news traveled to my friends in St. Louis that I had been killed in a fight with the Indians. In an hour or two, it was discovered that there was still life in me, and that I was reviving. I was examined. 
There was no bullet wound on my body, and again it was proved that my broad-bladed hunting knife, though not the same one, had averted the blow. It had been struck with an ounce of lead impelled with the full force of gunpowder. I speedily recovered, but continued sore for a long time. Every Blackfoot was killed by my men, who scaled their defense and leaped upon them in such numbers that they almost smothered them. Only four of my warriors were wounded. Intelligence of my injury was sent to the village, which was three weeks in reaching them. One thousand warriors instantly set out for the fort, all my wives accompanying them, but I had recovered before their arrival. Our party had scarcely encamped outside the fort when the Blackfeet, who were always haunting us, stole about eight hundred head of horses. On discovering the theft, a large party started on their trail up the river. The depredators would have to cross the river to get home, and there was no crossing for horses nearer than 15 miles, after which they had to go on to the Muscle Shell, a distance of 20 miles farther, and only 10 from the fort. I knew that this would be the route of the fugitives, because it was their regular beat. I had had no thought of going until it suddenly occurred to me that the party in pursuit would most likely fail to overtake the thieves, while I had so admirable an opportunity to catch them on the muscle shell. I took a party, therefore, forded the river near the fort, and went on straight to the muscle shell, where I posted my men. Our unsuspecting victims came up, singing in great merriment and driving our horses before them, all of which were jaded. I suffered them to approach close upon us and then gave the word to charge. Never was a party taken more by surprise. They were too dumbfounded to offer resistance and all we had to do was to chop them down. We had their 24 scalps in little more than the same number of seconds. When the other party came up and found the work done, they thought we had been rained down there. They knew they had left us at the fort, and we had not passed them on the way. And where did we come from? Pineleaf was with the party, and she was ready to blow me off my horse. It was unfair to take the job out of their hands, after they had almost run their horses off their legs in the chase. I expressed my regret at the fortunate turn affairs had taken, and promised never to offend in the same manner again. But it was a long while before I could banter her into good humor. I remained at the fort all the summer, as before stated, intending to go down the river on my way to St. Louis with the last boats in the fall. While idling there, I found the five men whom I had rescued from starvation in a penniless condition and unable to go to work again. 
It seemed the company had issued orders to their agents to furnish no more outfits to free trappers on their personal credit, as the risk was too great from their extreme liability to be killed by the Indians. To engage to work for the company at the price they were paying hands was only perpetuating their poverty, for they were running the same risk of their lives as if trapping for themselves, and their remuneration was but as one to ten. They were downhearted and knew not what to do. Considering their sad condition, I determined to befriend them and risk the chances. I therefore offered to give them an excellent outfit and direct them to the best beaver ground in the Crow Nation, where they would be protected from all harm by my Crow warriors as my friends, my interest to be one half of the proceeds. This offer was cheerfully accepted by the five men, and they were highly elated at the prospect. I then acquainted the crows that those men were my friends, that they were the remains of a party of eleven, of whom six had been killed by the Blackfeet, who had despoiled them of everything they had, and that I had found these in the prairie almost famished to death. I had engaged them to stay in the nation and trap for me, and I wished my faithful crow braves to protect them in their pursuit and suffer none to offer them molestation. This they all readily promised to do, and were even pleased with the trust, for it was a belief with the crows that the beavers in their streams were too numerous ever to be diminished. My bosom friend offered to remain with them, to show them the best streams and render them all the assistance in his power. He was a most valuable auxiliary, as his skill in trapping I never saw excelled. They went to work and met with extraordinary success. My share of their labors of less than three months amounted to five thousand dollars. End of chapter 26